Blog Talk Radio. Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. And a special welcome to the members of the Charleston Club and to Dr. Chakrabarty's family from Canada. Well, this show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions or make a comment. And then following the show, you can continue this discussion on AfroGenius.com and research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. In fact, please like both pages. Well, tonight's show will focus on the award-winning book, Forging Freedom, Black Women and the Pursuit of Liberty in Antebellum Charleston by author and historian Dr. Amrita Chakrabarty Myers. Dr. Myers earned her doctorate in American history from Rutgers University. A historian of black female experience, she is interested in race, gender, sexuality, rights, freedom, and citizenship, and the ways in which these constructs intersect with one another in the lives of black women in the Old South. She is currently Associate Professor of History and Gender Studies at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. For black women in antebellum Charleston, Freedom was not a static legal category, but a fragile and contingent experience. Forging freedom reveals the ways in which black women in Charleston acquired, defined, and defended their own vision of freedom. So let me give a warm welcome to Dr. Amrita Chakrabarty Myers to research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, Amrita. Thank you so much, Bernice, for that very, very warm introduction. I am so excited to be here with you this evening. 
Well, I am excited. I have read your book. I love your book. And I just want you to just give us a little bit more background about yourself. When did you become interested in history? And then why did you decide to explore the topic of free women of color, especially in the South? Well, I became interested in history as an undergraduate. I was a double major um, as an undergraduate in history and classics, so it was really all history all the time from ancient Greek and Roman classes all the way down to contemporary classes on uh, modern America and Canada and Russia, et cetera. Um, I had a wonderful, wonderful professor as an undergraduate. I did my bachelor's and my master's degree at the University of Alberta in Canada, where I grew up. And I had a wonderful mentor named Dr. Susan Smith, who is still at the University of Alberta. She was a brand-new professor. She had just gotten her Ph.D. from the University of Madison in Wisconsin, and she taught these terrific classes on um, U.S. women's history, um, black women's history, and I took a class with her when I was a junior. And it really it really just changed the way I thought about um, history, the way I thought about the world, and in particular how my relationship to the world as a woman of color um, growing up in a predominantly white country and just the, the different experiences I had had growing up that hadn't necessarily had language or context or terminology with which to understand or explain the things I was experiencing in terms of um, racial hierarchies as well as, as, as gender hierarchies. And, and her classes really opened my eyes to those things. And the more classes I took as a history major and the more work I did, the more I came to realize that instead of going to law school, which is what I had originally uh, anticipated doing, that I really wanted to go to graduate school and explore more about American history, about um, African-American history and women's history in particular, and sort of getting deeper and more involved into understanding these larger power structures that shape the world in which we live today and trying to understand where they all came from. Uh, so that's that's kind of how I developed my love of history um, in general. And then when I came to, to Rutgers University in New Jersey, I had the um, really the honor of working with Dr. Deborah Gray White. She was my doctoral advisor, and she she's really one of the the founders of the field of Black women's history. Um, wrote, wrote a very very powerful and important book called Aren't I a Woman back in 1983, which is considered to be one of the foundational texts in the field of, of, of black women's history. And I was fortunate, uh, really, to be able to work with her. And as I, as I thought about developing my, my dissertation research, I had worked, um, when I did my master's degree, I had worked on a project that examined the resistance that enslaved women engaged in on southern plantations. Um, and the ways, they, which they, in the ways in which they resisted their slavery on a daily basis. Um, from, you know, from daily acts that included, um, you know, faking illness to be able to get out of work, to um, running away to escape punishment, to rising up against their owners who were committing violence upon them, um, and defending themselves and their families, um, even to the point of, of murdering those who were coming after them. And so as I did that research, I began to think um, a lot more concretely when I was working on my dissertation about, you know, what were free women of color doing, because I knew that there were communities of free black women in the South. 
And there hadn't really been much work done on those particular groups of women. There had been a little bit of work done on free black women in the north, and there had been work done on enslaved women in the south, but there was this group um, that sort of fell through the cracks that hadn't really been fully researched. There had been a little bit of very good work done uh, by historians like Adele Alexander, um, who did a very um, important book on free women of color in Georgia in the 19th century. And there were a few other articles and um, book chapters that looked at the lives of, of black women in certain southern um, urban areas. But there hasn't really been an in-depth examination done on free black women's lives. And I, I had these questions. I thought, well, we know, you know how enslaved women are responding to slavery on the plantation. Uh, we know what um, black women in the north are doing to organize and get involved in abolition and women's rights movement. But what are black women who are free but who are still living in the south doing to carve out truly free lives and spaces for themselves because although they're quote-unquote free, what does that really mean when you are a black woman living in a city like Charleston, uh, in a state like South Carolina, which in the 19th century is obviously not only still committed to upholding racial slavery, but is also a society that was founded on um, principles of, of patriarchy and, and a society that was committed to upholding both slavery and patriarchy. And so that that's really the trajectory that led me to um, to studying. I, I had been interested in the South and black women's experiences in the South in the 19th century for a long time, but my project really developed out of this interest in resistance and uh, trying to understand the totality of black women's experiences and just feeling that this was a group of women who were very important to the story but whose narrative had been left out and whose voices we needed to recover if we really wanted to understand this very messy, slippery thing that we call freedom and what that really right. looks like. Right. So let's just for a minute let's talk about your book because I mean your your book is divided uh in in three parts. Of course you start off with your introduction imagining freedom in the slave south and then you cover uh, very interesting components of of what freedom is like. Glimpsing freedom building freedom, and experiencing freedom. So let's examine each part. Imagining freedom in the slave South. What did freedom mean? And I want to take it to the various degrees of freedom that you mention in your book, quasi-freedom, de facto freedom, virtually freedom, and legally free. What does all of this mean? Uh, well, no, that's, that's a perfectly good question. I'm just trying to think about what the best way would be for me to address that. I use all of these different terms of freedom in order to sort of explain or illuminate the fact that freedom is a messy construct, that it's not as simple as free and slave, but that there are degrees of freedom in a place like Charleston, South Carolina in the 19th century that there are there are certainly people who are legally enslaved and who are um you know used and worked like chattel laborers on plantations as well as in the city in uh various businesses um and um holdings around the city and within the urban areas of Charleston itself in 
carpentry uh, businesses, stonemason shops, etc. But there's there's sort of a spectrum of unfree or free behavior, I guess, if you want to look at it that way, that even when women and men are given their legal freedom with papers in hand, that there are still all kinds of barriers and obstacles to them being able to completely perform freedom or live out their freedom the way that they envision it and see it for themselves, that there are ob- there are legal obstacles in terms of the kinds of employment they can hold. There are barriers to them being able to get an education. There are all kinds of basic daily restrictions, including curfew laws. There's limitations on the um, wages they can request or demand per hour simply because they're black. There's also special taxes that free blacks have to pay um, on their own bodies simply for being free. And those are taxes that white persons never had to pay on their bodies. They're called head taxes and capitation taxes. So there are legally free people with papers who still experience all kinds of limitations um, and impediments on their freedom simply because they're people of color. In between, you have people who I call... um, I distinguish between, you know, people who are de facto free or de jure free. And de jure free is really just a legal term for people who are legally free with papers. But de jure freedom expected a large number of people in cities like Charleston, men and women who um, either ran away from their owners and then lived as if they were free people, blending into the larger free black community in Charleston, Um, and pretending to be free, marrying, going to church, attending school, purchasing property, paying taxes, all as if they were free people, although legally on paper they were not. And there are people who do this. Some of them, as I said, are people who run away from their owners. Others have been given permission, I guess, if you want to think about it, from their owners to live as if they are free people. They um, perhaps send a little bit of money back every month to their owners. Their owners perhaps live in the countryside on the plantation. They live in the city, and they have an arrangement with their owners whereby they they work in the city um, and they earn an income. They live on their own. They live as if they're free people, even though they are technically still enslaved on paper, And they send money back to their owners every month, um, kind of like a rental agreement, sort of being able to, this is money that I give you in order that you allow me to live as a free person. There are other owners who actually set their slaves free, but they never legalize it um, with the courts because it costs money to formally set your slaves free. And so Uh there are a lot of owners who didn't want to go through the trouble of having to file the paperwork and pay the money. And so they set these slaves free and let them go. But on paper, that that freedom is never legalized because they don't go to the county courts and have it formally recorded in the deed books or the manumission books. So there's all of these people living in Charleston, some of whom are, you know, runaway slaves, some some of whom are sort of living as free people with the consent of their owners, others who have been freed without papers, and then people who have paperwork, they're all, these are all members of Charleston's larger free black community. And so there are these various sort of degrees of freedom or stages of freedom that I use different terminologies for so that we can try to differentiate between which group of free people we're talking about. 
Yes, and this is really a, a, a new concept that we're hearing. So I, I just want you to just continue to talk about this because, I mean, you you mentioned the de facto, but what about, I mean, is this also virtually free or this is different? So people who I refer to as virtually free are are exactly the people that I had just been talking about who okay. live for all intents and purposes as if they are free people but don't have the legal paperwork to back it up. Uh, but virtual freedom can be very dangerous because you perhaps are living uh, free with the permission of your owner or they they thought they set you free even though it wasn't recorded in the books. But yes. what happens if what happens if that owner or that former owner passes away and that former owner's heirs come after you saying you are our slave, um, where you don't have paperwork and we're now reclaiming you and taking you back to the plantation. Um, we are now reclaiming you and we're going to sell you for money. There's there's always that fear when you don't have that paperwork that virtual freedom can disappear very quickly. Even legal freedom can disappear if um, white Charlestonians um, become afraid because perhaps there's a rumor of a slave insurrection. Um, perhaps they're feeling threatened because there's an economic downturn and there's a job shortage and unemployment is on the rise. Anything that makes white people in Charleston feel threatened about their own freedom and economic security can make them turn on free blacks and decide that this is no longer a population they wish to live amongst. So even legal freedom is always sort of in danger, but when you're virtually free, you're living free by the sort of good grace of a white family or owner that permits you to do so, and if they choose to change their minds, um, then that freedom could disappear, or if they, if they die, their children or grandchildren, like I said, could come after you and say, well, no, you're not free, we're taking you back. And so there's that constant threat that even when you're a free person, um, not only are there these obstacles and limitations to what you can and can't do on a daily basis, there's always the fear that someone is going to show up on your doorstep and say you are no longer free and pick you up and take and haul you off to jail or haul you back to the plantation, to the countryside, or sell you on the auction block. Wow. And, and I, can, I can imagine living under those conditions, too. So let's talk about why did you choose... Charleston, as opposed so to New Orleans that. or some other places. Sure. Um, no, I'm glad you asked me the question. It's a question that does come up fairly frequently. I think that Charleston is such an incredibly important city for a number of reasons. I think that if you're going to talk about free people of color, you have to, I mean, first of all, if you're talking about free people of color in the South, then there are a handful of urban areas where there are um, fairly substantial black, free black populations. Free blacks in the South tended to be urban by nature. There are more job opportunities. There are more educational opportunities. Um, just the opportunity to live in a neighborhood with a community of other black people, go to church, go to school, um, own property. These things are very, very difficult in the South period, but they're even even more difficult in rural areas where the only job opportunity is going to be uh, field labor 
um, mm-hmm. for formerly enslaved persons. But going to the city gives you much more opportunities for community and economic, social upward mobility. So there are a number of cities. There's New Orleans, which you mentioned, Savannah, Georgia, Baltimore, Maryland, which has a substantial black population, which often people forget because, you know, even though Maryland is a slave state, often we think about Maryland's positioning during the Civil War and fighting on the side of the Union, and so that people can often forget about Baltimore. Washington, D.C., certainly, Petersburg, Virginia. There are a number of cities, um, a handful, and I talk about all of them in my book because I think it's important that if we're going to talk about Charleston that we compare what's happening to free black women in Charleston to free black women in other southern urban centers in the 19th century because I don't think we can compare what's happening to women in Charleston uh, to the north necessarily or to rural areas. We have to look at other southern urban environments. Um, I chose Charleston because I think that New Orleans, um, which I looked at very closely, wonderful city, and really in many respects, there's still a lot of research that needs to be done on New Orleans. I chose Charleston instead of New Orleans because I felt that New Orleans history as part of both the Spanish and the French empires before it became an American city makes the city's history incredibly unique and and very unusual. And I wondered if it was so unique and so unusual, if it would really be a good city um, to be able to draw comparisons with. And so I thought that I, I thought about Charleston, which is a port city like New Orleans, is very um, part of a larger, not only American Southern urban slave world, but also part of a larger Atlantic port city slave world. Um, Charleston very tied to not only uh, colonies and, and ultimately nations like Saint Domingue slash Haiti but also to places like Barbados because colonists from Barbados settled on Charleston, South Carolina. And so I I thought that Charleston's position as a port city, as an urban center, um, as as really a very important economic center in the antebellum South, a major player in the domestic slave trade, this is a city that is very, very important, uh, but I think could... I I was very sure in the back of my mind would be more um, more comparable to cities like Savannah and cities like Baltimore, which are also major economic port cities, um, you know, in the American slave economy. Uh, I thought that it would be able to, you know, that there would be a better chance of, of talking about Charleston and being able to draw comparisons about black women's lives in Charleston to to other cities, whereas New Orleans, I worried that it was so unique that it might not that I might not be able to necessarily to do that. I also was very excited because Charleston has such a rich and amazing documentary evidence base. There are many cities that had free black populations where the evidence hasn't survived because the Civil War destroyed a lot of the documents, or these were cities that didn't necessarily keep very good records in the 18th and 19th centuries. But Charlestonians were absolutely type A, I would say, about (laughs) record keeping. Um, They documented everything and wrote down everything and 
you have such an incredibly rich um, documentary base to work from, especially because the records were not destroyed. Um, certainly there were many that were lost. We don't have a complete set of records anywhere uh, for the 18th and 19th centuries. Things were lost to fire. They were lost to flood. They were lost to all kinds of devastation. Things were accidentally thrown out or destroyed. But Charleston as a city was spared on Sherman's march um, through the South during the war because he had a fondness for the city. And there were also a lot of records that were hidden um, in fireproof buildings and storage areas uh, and were protected from flood and fire and destruction during the, war, during the war and also prior to the war. So the documents are very rich in Charleston, and I think that Charleston is able to um, stand in and be compared to a number of other American cities. And, and I, that was re- those were really two of the things that drew me um, to Charleston in particular for a study of, of free women of color. There's a substantial free black population. It, it holds steady at around 3,000 for a large portion of the 19th century. And because I was particularly interested in free black women, I also thought it was important to look at Charleston because uh, the majority of free blacks in Charleston are women. So not only is there a substantial free black population, but the majority of that population are female. Interesting. Well, since you mentioned records, and as genealogists and historians we are, of course, very interested in the sources that you use, please tell us about some of the sources you use to research black women in Charleston, and then give us examples of what you uncovered. Oh, I'm happy to do that. One of the things that anyone, of course, all of your listeners are going to understand what I'm about to say very clearly, because if you if you work on African-American history, if you do African-American genealogy, you know that it's excruciatingly difficult when you get back into the 19th century and then even further back into the 18th century, uh, not all, because African Americans were not meant to show up in the record books a lot of the time. The, the records were created primarily by elite white men to highlight the accomplishments of other elite white men. And so these were not records that were meant to capture or highlight the voices or stories of of black persons, particularly of free black women who are running up on obstacles not only of, of, you know, lack of racial privilege, but lack of gender privilege as well, being women. I... There, because also because of slavery and the fact that southern states prohibited education uh, by law to persons of color, that made it another layer of difficulty because we don't have a lot of firsthand documentation. Um, elite white persons had the, the money, the education, and the leisure time to write letters to one another, to keep diaries and journals, and to keep very extensive record books of their businesses and families and plantations, even things like family Bibles. These are not things that we have um, in, at really in large number, if at all, from um, most southern uh, black families they were prevented from acquiring a legitimate education and that lack of literacy and lack of leisure time uh, because they were working very hard. They didn't have the education or the time necessarily to write letters, to leave record books, to leave journals or diaries. And so it means turning to primarily public records, 
government-created documents. This is, I mean, this runs the range from something as simple as a city directory to um, wills and estate papers, mortgage and land records, petitions to the state legislature, legal codes, um, tax, oh, tax books, census materials, city and federal state, uh, tax, uh, tax books and tax materials, uh, legal records, uh, court cases, civil and uh, criminal cases, manumission books, deed books where people are being set free. There are there's an abundance of city, state, and federal records that were created to record the you know sort of lives of all Charlestonians, uh, where they lived, what they did for a living, who owned them, what color they were, etc. Like I said, South Carolinians were really really obsessed with record keeping, and that's one of the things that that made this project both exciting and doable, but also in some ways really difficult because I didn't go into the project with a family that I was researching and a set of names. I wanted to find out everything I could on any free black woman who had lived in Charleston from 1790 to 1860. I was really trying to get a sense of black women's lives over three generations in the city and how their lives may or may not have changed over over those three generations. So I didn't have a list of names to begin with. And although Charleston has these wonderful records, the records are not indexed by gender or race. And so, for example, when I sat down and uh, spoke to the archivists about the projects that I was working on and the information that I was hoping to find, you know, they were originally kind of perplexed as to how to help me because they, they couldn't quite figure out how how I could get into the records and uncover black women's stories from the public records. But then they began to direct me to you know, tax returns, for example, there is a small batch of tax returns that exist for free black men and women in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, it's a very, very small batch of original handwritten tax returns. Uh, so incredibly rare that it's shocking to, to see these. And they had them in cold storage to protect them because they were original handwritten documents, um, you know, taxing free people of color on their houses, on their land, on their horses, um, and on any enslaved laborers they may have owned because those were the things that were considered, quote, unquote, quote real property, um, ho homes, land, horses, and, and enslaved persons. But as I, so as I did this, that was at least a finite set of records where I had a small batch of tax records that were all on free people of color. But when I sat down to look at the wills, for example, for the county of Charleston, I looked at every single will that had been written from 1790 to 1860 for the entire county of Charleston. That, that meant I had to read every will, whether it was a white person's will or a black person's will, a woman's will or a man's will, because the wills were not indexed by race or gender. I literally had to sit down and read 70 years' worth of wills and by reading the wills come to understand if the person writing the will was a white man or a black man, a white woman or a black woman. But I had to depend on 
the black people self-identifying as a free person of color, a free woman of color, a free black woman. So if they didn't self-identify that way, I'm sure that there were men and women that, that I missed. Um, and sometimes I was able to backtrack and find them because other family members would write wills where they would self-identify. And as I started reading more and more wills, not only did I find wills written by free black women, I also found wills written by white men that referred to black women. I found wills written by black men that referred to their wives and daughters. I was able to start to put together family trees based on piecing together records from, from wills over a period of 70 years. So it well, was, I have it two questions with, for you. I have two questions oh, for sure, you coming out sure. of the chat. And the first mm-hmm. is, how long did it take you to read all of those wills? That's the first <laughs> question. And the second is, were these free people of color taxes kept separately away from the white records? Uh, two really excellent questions. So the, how long did it take me to read the wills? I I wonder if I blanked that out intentionally. I can tell you that I spent nine months living in South Carolina I spent five months living in Columbia, working at the state archives where the wills are held. And I spent another four months in Charleston, and I did research at a number of different facilities in Charleston, including the South Carolina Historical Society, the Avery Institute for um, Black History and Culture, um, the Charleston Library Society, the Charleston County Public Library. There were a number of facilities in Charleston that I did research at. I, the, the majority of the governmental or public records that I mentioned were held or are held still at the South Carolina Department of Archives and History in Columbia because that's the repository for all the state-created records. And that's where I, I went through the wills. And it, it took me quite a long time. It's, that's not all I looked at there, obviously. I was there for five months. Um, but it took me weeks, <laughs> weeks and weeks and weeks uh, to go through. I was there working six days a week, and it took me weeks and weeks and weeks to go through the wills. Um, in terms of the, the tax records that I mentioned, these are there's lots of different kinds of tax records that the State Archives has. There are the capitation tax books which record the names of all three people of color who had to pay those head taxes that I talked about, and those are separate record books that are held. The city of Charleston also taxed free people of color um, another capitation tax. So if you lived in Charleston and you were a free black person, you not only had to pay a head tax to the state, uh, and those books were kept at the state archives. You also had to pay a separate head tax to the city, and those municipal records were kept in Charleston. So Char- three people of color in Charleston are being taxed twice for being black, so they're being doubly disadvantaged. The records I was talking about were actual um, tax returns um, on property. So those were regular taxes that all property owners paid regardless of race or gender, those would be like the property taxes or income taxes that we pay today on our homes and our businesses and our and our income. 
those were so those records were not separated out. The, the tax books for head taxes were kept separately. Those were ledgers that were labeled manumission uh, head taxes or capitation taxes for free people of color in the city of Charleston or in the state of South Carolina. But the paper handwritten original tax returns I referred to were they were found among regular tax returns for residents of Charleston because they were not taxed any differently for property than any other white person would have been. But the archives separated them out and kept them in a special separate collection so that they would be more easily accessible to researchers who wanted to look at free black property owners and and their records. Okay, well, thank you for for answering that question. And I'm going to give you a quick one-minute break. We're going to come back because there's just so much to talk about. And so when we come back, we're going to talk about focus on building freedom and just what does that mean, okay? So quick break, and we'll be right back. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. You can also find some of the archived shows on my website, JeannieBRoots.com. Now, I have opened the phone lines for questioning, and if you would like to ask a question or make a comment, please call 646 646- Two zero 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 four nine one and press one to speak to the host. I will call out your area code and you will be live. Now you have been listening to author and historian Dr. Amrita Chakrabarti Myers discuss her award-winning book *Forging Freedom: Black Women and the Pursuit of Liberty in Antebellum Charleston*. And I see I already have a question, so. Area code 301, what is your question? 
Oh, hi, Dr. Myers and Ms. Bernice Bennett. My name is Angela Martin. Uh, thank you for acknowledging my comment. And I read the book, and I was captivated by uh, your research. And I just, first of all, I want to thank you for analyzing our free black women's contributions to the economic, political, and social life in Charleston and opening a window uh, to more ancestors' lives that we knew very little about. And I thought the book was quite an outstanding piece. And I, really, I feel it would make a great textbook or a movie, actually. Um, but Thank I, you. I appreciate that. <laughs> you're welcome. But I and uh, many of my ancestors were from Charleston, South Carolina, and I have documentation for several free women of color living there at the time of your research. Um, and first of all, I rem- remember you mentioning a couple of men, too. One was a Philippe Stanislaus Noisette, who was my ancestor through marriage. And you mentioned a Jehu Jones, and actually I found out that his guardian was one of my ancestors' brothers, William Lance. Um, but my question is pertaining to some of the women in my family. Uh, one was not mentioned in your book, and her name was Julia. She was a woman of color who fought her case in court and won against a prolific planter of the Gurdan family, Theodore Gurdan. Um, he left his estate to three mulatto children, and one of whom was her husband. And after he died, she actually went to court and fought to become executor of his estate and won and went back and won the case so the estate could be left to uh, the three children. And the plantation owner's brother tried to intervene, and she won her case. That was in 1866 when he died. But the question I have is about another one of my ancestors, Caroline, who I found a will for in Charleston in 1869. I actually found the uh, will, a part of the tax book, of Charleston Free Persons of Color, 1862 to 1864. Uh, she was about 31 years old when she died. She was a widow, business owner, mantua maker, free woman of color on Calhoun Street. She did not own the property. Uh, she may have passed for white sometimes, according to oral history, but I found Caroline in the capitation tax book only once in the census in 1860 as head of household, which I thought was interesting because there was a white physician listed last in that household who had a different surname behind her two babies. But my question is, he may have been a boarder or a guardian, I don't know, but my question is um, she wrote this letter in a part of her will, and a statement that she made, I had a question about. She says, I, Caroline Burke, bring, bring in feeble, I am in feeble health, but of sound and disposing mind, do make and ordain this my will. And I give and bequest to Dr. Richard North, in trust and for the use of my daughter, Mary, all the proper, all the property, I'm trying to read the handwriting here, property of every kind and description of which I am disposed of in whatsoever manner in such time or times as said Richard North may deem best. So my question is, that part of interest and for the use, what does she mean by the use? And the other question I have for her is... Okay, let, let's is, let her answer this question okay. and then we'll, we'll uh, continue on with the show. Thank you so much okay. for calling You're welcome. In. Okay. No, that's a... That's a very good question. That's a legal term that um, was used very commonly throughout the 18th and 19th centuries. 
when so she was leaving all of the property that she had. She was actually leaving it to her daughter, but she was, uh, you know, she didn't leave it to her daughter directly. Her daughter might have been um, a minor, um, you know, so because she was a minor, she left the property in trust to a guardian who would administer that property for her daughter. So when it says for the, for the use of, it means that she's not leaving the property to the guardian to use for himself or his own benefit. It's a legal term that, that means that he is to administer the property, the estate, the money for the benefit of her daughter. It's supposed to be to, you know, to maintain her, uh, upkeep her, perhaps pay for her education, her clothing, her shelter, whatever she would need. So that, um, that's a fairly common legal term. That's what it would have meant. Right. Okay. Well, thank you, caller. And I I want to go back to some of the questions, and then I do have some questions coming out of the uh, chat room. One of the questions is, did you encounter any free people of color slave owners? Oh, yes, I, I definitely did. And this is not unique to Charleston. It's not even unique to the United States. If you, as I, as I discovered as I was doing my research, I started reading up on free people of color um, throughout the Atlantic world, um, Brazil, different parts of the Caribbean, Mexico, and other parts of Latin America. And um, in all of these particular societies, there are free people of color, number one, and number two, within that free, uh, free colored class, if you want to refer to them that way, there are always a small number of persons who themselves own slaves. Um, some of these uh, men and women owned laborers who, uh, for, you know, as economic property. They rented them out by the month for profit. They worked them on their own land. They also used them as apprentices and laborers in their businesses in urban areas. Um, but there were other men and women who owned slaves who were actually family members. And in, at least in Charleston in particular, I can certainly say that this happened frequently because after 1820, the law in the state of South Carolina changed and um, prohibited owner manumission. Uh, so prior to 1820, slave owners could set their slaves free um, simply of their own decision. And, and like I said, they were supposed to record it with the courts, but there was no law prohibiting them from doing so. After 1820, manumission was restricted to the state legislature only. And so there were, that's when the de facto or virtually free population shot through the roof because there were so many men and women who um, could not be legally freed because the state legislature wouldn't free anybody, essentially. Even though, I mean, so owners could no longer do it. The state, was the, the state had to, um, to verify or to authorize the manumission, and they pretty much were not willing to manumit anybody unless you did something really incredible and quote-unquote heroic like um, helped tattletale on an impending slave insurrection, like a slave revolt or something like that. So it was very rare for a slave to be able to acquire their legal freedom after 1820. And that's, um, that, that has a lot to do with the fact that you have free blacks who end up, and white people, who end up owning people that they don't want to own, that they want to set free but legally can't. But definitely it's happening in Charleston. There are, there are women of color, free women of color who own slaves. 
um, just as is happening in New Orleans and in, and in other places, not only in the U.S., like I said, but um, throughout the slaveholding Western Atlantic world. Right. Well, another question, it, it's, that, it, it's consistent with the, the last question I just asked you. They want to know, did you name some of the free people of color slave owners in your book? Do I, I'm sorry, do I name them? Yes. Yes, I do. I, I talk very, if I find, when I, I, I actually talk about uh, free, free women who own slaves in several places throughout the book. It certainly comes up in um, the, chapter on, the chapter on work because I talk about free women of color who own their own shops and businesses and who um, either hire slave laborers or who own slaves that they apprentice to work in their businesses. I also talk about uh, specifically uh, women who own slaves in the chapter on property ownership because I go through women's wills and talk about what it is they owned, what they were able to uh, pass on or bequeath to their children and grandchildren. And I talk about the different kinds of property they transmit to their descendants, clothing, jewelry, land, houses, as well as enslaved laborers. So I do right. I do talk about them there. And then in the second, the last part of the book, I have an entire chapter dedicated to one particular family, the, the Bedingal Tuno family. And that's a story of one family over three generations. Um, and, and, I, and they were, they were slaveholders. These were women who did own slaves in addition to other forms of property. So I talk about it very concretely. I talk about it not only collectively as a group, but I do also mention specific women who own slaves um, who, and who own them for various reasons, women who own them as family members who they could not set free, women who own them as property, women who bequeathed them, sold them. Um, I absolutely do talk about it, and it's a... It's definitely a subject matter or a topic that people are uh, very interested to talk to me about. <laughs> okay, so we have a lot of questions coming out of the chat. I do want to ask you this question, though, and then I'll get back to the chatters. Um, sure. You know, you discuss various tactics, both legally manumitted and unofficially living free. What did women have to do to gain let's say manumission papers, or to become unofficially living free. Just just give us some examples. There, there are almost as many pathways to freedom as there are women, as I conclude <laughs> in my book, which, you, which yes. you know because you've read it. There are a number of things. There are women who were set free because they performed an act of heroism and saved um, you know, a child's life, for example, their master's child's life. Uh, they might have been set free at the um, when their master died because for good service, for years of faithful service, for nursing their owners through an illness or something of that nature. They might, uh, there was a woman who was given her freedom because she helped save her master's house from being burned to the ground during a fire in the city of Charleston. There were other women who purchased their freedom. They entered into negotiations with their owners and contracted to buy themselves free, which took them often decades because their earning potential was so low. Wages were so low for black women in Charleston, but they would labor for years to purchase themselves out of freedom by buying themselves from their owners. They would also buy their children free um, you know, and other members of their family if they could. Uh, like I said, it would often take them decades. So you have self-purchase, 
Um, you have being set free for various acts of heroism or, or long terms of grateful service, etc. There are people who are, there are women who are purchased out of slavery by their husbands or fathers, for example. Um, so there are black men who are buying their wives or buying their children um, out of slavery. There are also women who are set free because their, their fathers are white. Their mothers are, are enslaved black women, and their, their white fathers will manumit them um, you know, either while they are still living or when, when they die in their will, they will leave their children free in their will. Uh, there are women who are set free because they um, are involved in long-term familial right, sexual relationships with white men. So there's a number of pathways to freedom. Not every woman becomes free the same way, and it, it can be as varied as, you know, this is your reward for faithful service to you were my, um, my, my, my partner, my sexual partner for 20, 30, 40 years, to you were my child, to I bought myself free, I bought my daughter free, I bought, you know, so lots of different avenues to freedom. Right. Okay. Now, let me just get to some of the questions out of the chat. <laughs> this sure. is great. Uh, were free people affected if there were people who were runaways who lived nearby? For example, if there were some runaways, were free people threatened by the authorities or suspected by authorities as conspiring to assisting with the runaways? Mm, that's a great question. The 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 black the free black community in Charleston, as I said, is kind of is home to a number of different kinds of free people: legally free people, fugitive slaves, quasi free, virtually free, <laughs> maybe de facto free people of a whole host of of levels. Um, the authorities in Charleston, the white authorities in Charleston, tend to turn a blind eye to the fact that so many of the free black community members are not really legally free. As long as times are peaceful and there's no threats of rebellion or revolt or resistance, um, when the economy is good and everyone has jobs, white people in Charleston seem to kind of, um, you know, open secret. They turn a blind eye to the fact that there are so many people living in this community who really aren't legally free. Um, and free people of color who are, quote-unquote, legitimately free, if you want to call them that, uh, they seem to interact uh, with, you know, other people of color who are living as free people. There are marriages taking place. People live in the same neighborhoods. They go to the same churches. There doesn't necessarily seem to be a lot of... Uh, distinction or animosity between those who would be quote unquote legitimately free between and those who sort of are you know self made free if you want to think about it that way when it becomes a problem is when times are bad when there's been threat of a revolt, and then the authorities um come knocking right they heighten security, they come into the black community and begin knocking on doors, asking people to provide freedom papers, manumission records. The problem is is that even a lot of legitimately free blacks don't have papers because their families have been free for several generations and the papers were lost. Papers mm -hmm. were destroyed by flood or by fire or they've just been lost over time. And what starts to happen is that even legitimately free people in times of increased security can find themselves 
being detained for questioning or arrested, potentially even resold um, or sold on the auction block because they don't have any way of proving their freedom. And so it becomes really important for all free people, whether they're, they have papers or not, to make um, to have strong relationships with prominent or powerful white Charlestonians who can speak on their behalf and um, mm-hmm. come to court, sign affidavits for them, and stand up for them and say, no, 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 he, he or she is free, I vouch for them. And so having yes. a guardian or a protector or a patron who will speak on your behalf becomes critically important for all free blacks as we move through the 19th century and times get increasingly more uh, tense and violent as we come closer to the Civil War. Uh, but in terms of the free black community itself, it's filled with so many different kinds of free people, and there doesn't necessarily seem to be a lot of mm, sort of distinction that way. Mm-hmm. Well, there's another question coming out of the chat, and were there any other races beside black and Native American among free people of color in Charleston? Uh, well, that's a really interesting question, too. Certainly, when you look at how people are listed in the records, that, that's the other thing about South Carolinians and about Charlestonians in particular, is when they kept these public records, they were really quite obsessive-compulsive about listing down people's color, um, you know, and you would find all kinds of descriptions, not just free black or free Negro or free person of color, but, you know, mulatto, yellow, red, bright, um, all kinds of strange terms that were being used uh, because South Carolinians apparently created what I call the eyeball estimates, you know, census speakers would show up and they would look at they would look at you, they would eyeball you, and then they would guess what they thought you were, and they would write down your a description of you based on their eyeball estimate of your physical appearance. And so the same person could show up in the records over a period of years, listed in several different ways, depending on who the census taker was and how they decided to um, evaluate them. But mm-hmm. um, so the the free black community. I mean, there may well have been people, I mean, certainly there were people who were of Native American and African American ancestry mixed with white, mixed with um, also French because of the uh, influx of uh, immigrants after the the revolution in Saint-Domingue and Haiti. Uh, So there's certainly uh, the free free colored community in Charleston is certainly mixed. If, If the person, if the question is asking about whether or not there are other races altogether, if there are um, Spanish people or Portuguese people, even um, Asian, uh, Indian people, that's that's eminently possible, but the records don't necessarily reflect that. I did find one record of a woman who was claiming that she was um, free and that she shouldn't have to pay her cap- her head taxes, her capitation taxes, because even though she was a free person of color, she wasn't descended from uh, from black lineage, that she was Portuguese, and that because she was Portuguese, she therefore should be, um, you know, she she should not have to pay the capitation tax. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's, that's the one record that I remember really clearly because it was so unusual that she was using, you know, supposedly Portuguese lineage to try and avoid paying her capitation taxes as a as a free black person. Isn't that that's um, but, quite yeah. interesting? Yes. Well, why don't you just give us an idea 
of what, how did the free women of color earn a wage? Just give us an idea of what, you know, what did they do? There were the vast majority of them uh, performed tasks either in, in what I call clothing-related trades. They were seamstresses. Uh, they were mantua makers, which was mentioned by your phone-in caller a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were seamstresses. They were mantua makers, tailoresses, um, things of that nature. Or they were washerwomen and laundresses. And I also, that's part of this larger clothing-related sort of group that I that I talk about. Many of them were laundresses and washerwomen, which is uh, you know, not not surprising. There are also a number of women who have um, who have their own shops and businesses. In addition to being mm-hmm. a seamstress or a washerwoman, we have women who are pastry chefs, who are um, specialized cooks of different kinds. They're candy makers. They're 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 cake makers, etc. They're bakers. They're cooks. There are also women who own run boarding houses. Um, one woman, Eliza Seymour, becomes a hotel owner. She starts out running a, a, a boarding house and eventually become, opens up her own hotel. A lot of black women take in tenants to help pay the rent, to help defray expenses. But you have a whole um, sort of range of occupations from, you know, sort of um, unskilled menial um, day laborers on the docks working cargo to women who are involved in prostitution all the way to the other end of the spectrum where you have skilled women who are um, either working, you know, working for themselves, apprentice to others, and, and even own their own shops. Very interesting. Now, would you please just tell us a little about this whole interracial liaisons with white men in Charleston? What have you uncovered? <laughs> oh, it's a great can't get away without talking about it. We have to talk about it. <laughs> of course, no, it's perfectly <laughs> fine. I think that one of the things I think is important to keep in mind is that right, not all free black women were involved in relationships with white men. I think that when you talk about cities like New Orleans and Charleston, there's kind of a default setting that. That most free, that most or all free women of color were either biracial children descended from these relationships, or they were women who were um, involved with white men. And I'm certainly not disputing the fact that there were women who were involved with white men. I write about them. There were there were women who were the children of biracial. You know, they were biracial children of these relationships. I write about them, but they're they're not. Um, they're not the numerical majority from the records that I've been able to sort of uncover, uh, but they're certainly they're certainly important. And there's a range of different types of sexual liaisons or relationships. There are violent, you know, rape encounters that last one night or that last, you know, over time. There are all the way to the other end of the spectrum where there are women who are, you know, living in what appear to be, um, you know, marital relationships with white men for 20, 30, 40 plus years. Um, And these are white men who don't have white wives. These, you know, these black women are the the their their only wife the woman that they live with um, openly um, as their as their partner 
uh, they have children together. These women, you know, raise the children, take care of the home, run, you know, run the run not run the household in terms of the the enslaved laborers who potentially work for them, um, et cetera. So they are. You have the whole range of relationships that can happen from you know, highly coercive, non-consensual, violent sexual assaults that might happen once or that might happen repeatedly all the way to the other end of the spectrum where you have these decades-long relationships. I can't say for sure that, that these decades-long relationships were affectionate, that they were consensual, that there wasn't an element of coercion because these women didn't leave behind for, behind first-hand records saying, oh, I, I love my husband or I love my, my partner or or whatever. But, but what we can do is we can look at the records that were left. We can look at the wills. We can look at the estate papers. We can look at the oral testimonies of community members who knew these couples and their families. We can look at the testimony of their descendants, and we can – we can come to conclusions, clearer conclusions about whether or not these relationships were consensual relationships or not. And I mean, some of them perhaps began as non-consensual relationships, and then may have evolved into more, uh, more or, or less coercive relationships over time. So it's really it's so much more complicated than a simple these ones were consensual, these ones were violent, or these ones were rape and assault, these ones were not. Um, it's so hard to get to these women's voices and how they felt about these relationships, but we try to put together, I tried to put together as much evidence as I could from the records to at least be able to talk more concretely about what life was like for these women. And one thing we do see is that there's also this thought process that if you were involved with a white man, that your life was automatically somehow better, that you were financially more stable, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things I discovered is that there were plenty of uh, black women who were involved with really with you know, poor white men. And so those relationships didn't necessarily um, bring them a whole lot of benefit in terms of, you know, literacy or property or money or, or anything of that nature. But women who had long-term relationships, uh, fairly it looks like at least amicable relationships, long-term relationships with white men who had wealth and property, that could certainly be beneficial, not necessarily to them, but to their children. So when I mm-hmm. talk about women like Margaret, when I talk about women like Margaret Bettingall, who's involved with Adam Chuno for 40 years, the benefits that come come not so much to her as they do to her daughters Barbara and Hagar. Um, mm-hmm. That 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 Barbara you know gets legal manumission. That Barbara is sent to a real school to get a real education. That both Barbara and Hagar inherit substantial property from from Adam when he passes away. Margaret does. Margaret is never formally uh, freed. Margaret is never formally educated. She dies illiterate and probably still enslaved. But he, but she does inherit property from Adam when he dies. That forty years does bring her some financial. She has a, a comfortable life during those forty years. She lives in a mansion on the East Bay. But the the benefits that really come to the family are benefits that come to Barbara and Hagar as a result of Margaret's relationship. 
And so it's, I think it's really important to understand that not all women are having these relationships, number one. If they do have these relationships with white men, how much benefit they get depends on how wealthy these white men are. And if it's a poor or middle-class white man, it might not be as beneficial. And, and if it's a long-term amicable relationship that leads to children, that's when what black women can really benefit. And they benefit not just for themselves, but they benefit particularly that their children are able to acquire legal emancipation, literacy and education, and property, which positions them to actually have much stronger, more meaningful, you know, rights and freedoms and privileges than, you know, being a poor free black woman of, you know, without any connections or any property or anything of that nature. Right. Well, we're getting close to the end of the show, and I'd like you to just tell us, uh, you know, since publishing your your work, uh, uh, Forging Freedom, in 2011, what else have you been working on, and can we look forward to another book? Uh, You certainly can look forward to another book. I am deep in the midst of researching my second book project, and it really, it's kind of, I'm glad that you asked the last question that you asked me before you asked me about my new project because it segues really nicely. I was really, really increasingly interested about these interracial relationships, and I wondered, you know, what brought women into these relationships? Why did they stay? How much do they really gain from them? Um, Is this really just happening? Because people will say, oh, that's Charleston or that's New Orleans. It's unique. It's unusual. And I began to think to myself, is it really that unique and unusual? Is it only happening in places like Charleston or New Orleans? And I loved, um, really, really loved researching and writing those final two chapters of my book where I look at individual families over um, a fairly long period of time. And so I'm now currently working. I, I wanted to do one family, and I wanted to be able to write a really in-depth narrative history of one interracial family and focus on the black women and children of of that family and be able to talk concretely about how do local people respond to these families, what rights and privileges are they able to acquire as a result of their relationship to this white husband slash father, um, where are the lines drawn, what rights and privileges are closed off to them, um, what, you know, what, like I said, all of these things and all these questions that I had about the choices that black women have, like the, there are limits to their to their freedom. There are things they can't do. And so they have a limited um, sort of number of tools in their toolbox um, in order to acquire a more expanded free, a more expansive freedom and to create stronger freedom for their children and grandchildren. And, you know, one of those things is, you know, women who are able to forge these relationships with white men. So I I thought it would be really important to talk in depth about one family and to be able to think about what this family can teach us about about sort of the limitations um, when you're a black woman in the South, but also um, the obstacles that black women are over are able to overcome, the the things that they're able to acquire, the power they're able to acquire, and despite living in the slave South by engaging in these kinds of relationships. And so I'm doing a study on um, Vice President Richard Mentor Johnson, who was Vice President of the United States under Martin Van Buren from 1837 to 41. And I'm looking at his family. He was involved for over 20 years uh, with um, a woman of color named Julia Chin. 
and uh, they lived in rural Kentucky, and they had two daughters together, um, Adeline and Imogene. And so this is the family that I'm that I'm looking at, and they're they're the focus and the centerpiece of my new book project. Um, and I think that the this particular family is really important. Uh, because I think there are lots of other families like them all over the country that we don't know about. But Richard and Julia, there are records that, that exist for them that maybe don't exist for some of these other families. And because Richard was a high-profile politician for 40 years, because he was a state senator and congressman as well as a federal senator, congressman, and vice president, we, he has a national spotlight. And so there are there are more records on him. We know more about him, and therefore – his private life comes into the public spotlight because of his um, political um, political aspirations and career. And I think it's really important to be able to look at a family like Richard and Julia and see, and see what they can tell us, what Julia and her life and the lives of her two daughters can tell us about not only how local rural Kentuckians respond to these kinds of interracial relationships, but how nationally, federally people respond. Well, how do people respond in Washington, D.C. to this relationship? But how do voters across the country respond and feel about this particular type of relationship? How do they respond to having a vice president, vice presidential candidate who um, has a 20-plus year relationship with a black woman and has two daughters who are women of color? Um, so this isn't Charleston, this isn't New Orleans, it's not a port city, it's rural Kentucky, but we still have this happening. And so I think that it's important to understand that women like Julia are, you know, in existence everywhere across this nation, that slavery has created this system where interracial relationships are happening, whether they're violent and coercive or more, you know, more consensual, more amicable, they're happening everywhere in the frontier, in rural areas, in places like Kentucky, not just in major port cities like New Orleans or Charleston. And I'm excited to keep doing the research and to find out as much as I can about Julia and her daughters and be able to talk a little bit more concretely over the course of an entire book, not just one or two chapters, about what it really meant to be a black woman involved in this kind of a relationship in the 19th century South. Well, we look forward to to reading uh, your book, and there are two comments coming out of the chat. One is, I wonder where the descendants of that family are today and whether they identify as black or white. So these are, are two questions that we hope that you may be answering when your book comes out. So I want to thank you very much for sharing your award-winning book, Forging Freedom, Black Women, and the Pursuit of Liberty in Antebellum Charleston. And for those of you interested in purchasing this book, it's now in paperback. So I hope that you all will put this book as one of your wish list books for Christmas and, and share with everyone what you have read and what you think about the book. So thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, tune in next Thursday. We will have Angela Walton Raji, and she will be discussing African and Native American research. And we will have Angela in the chat room as we listen to the discussion of African and Native American research. So, good night, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me. And remember, your ancestors left footprints. 
Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and the Afrogenius Facebook pages. Also, remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Fridays. Friday morning, and Nurturing Our Roots with Antoinette Harrell on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Thank you for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I look forward to you joining me next Thursday. Good night, everyone. Good night, Dr. Myers. Thank you so much, Bernice.